Well, uh, let's begin. Let's begin uh, this morning in prayer, and uh, we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, we're grateful. Grateful for the gospel. We're grateful of all of the things that Jesus said and did, who he was, all the way up to his ascension that we'll hear about in this sermon today, and how we take part in the ministry of Christ, even as he ministers from heaven to us. This is not a light calling once we properly consider it. So we're thankful to play a part in it, and we pray for grace to do it well. Lord, help us as we close out this discussion of unity and diversity in light of union with Christ and begin to talk about uh, denominations of the body of Christ. Be with us, we ask, in a special way, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we will finish uh, the union with Christ aspect of the Sunday school uh, to Sunday of, of that series today, excuse me, during this Sunday school hour, you'll remember last time I suggested that union with Christ changes a couple things with regard to identity, and that's really kind of the last the the the, the last topic is how union with Christ changes identity. And I argued that the first one was at least I argued was that it changes where we find dignity and self worth, and even how we think about ourselves, and even how we carry ourselves. Um, I am a new person. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And so you remember I used the, with a lot of wrong details about <laughs> the, the cartoon or the show or whatever, uh, Peter Parker. I used the Peter Parker being Spider-Man illustration. Does everyone remember that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, everyone, painfully so, I guess. Yeah, so, so that's what I want to suggest is what happens in union with Christ. I do not literally become a different person. That is to say, Peter Parker still was Peter Parker. But because he took on a new identity, it changed everything about how he carried himself, how he thought about himself as Peter Parker, including having a new set of responsibilities. Okay? Um, now, let me ask this, uh, though. In the absence of identity in Christ, and, and that being what is what we find valuable about us, and that's kind of who, who, we, who we think of ourselves as, someone who is in Christ and all the corollary things that come with that that we've discussed, that I'm an heir to the world, that I'm going to judge angels, that I'm a co-heir with Christ, that I have a, a heavenly father, all those things. Um, what, do we, what are the handful of things that we tend to turn to in order to feel worthy or dignified or fulfilled with ourselves or whatever? What are kind of the run-of-the-mill things we turn to when that is perhaps not quite enough? What do you think? People, people what? Okay, yeah, good. So, yeah, seeking to find our value and what other people around us think of us, you know. Whether it's, oh, you're such a great mom. Oh, you're such a great dad. You're such a great you know, husband or wife or student or, or whatever the case may be. And I you know, grab little pieces of meaning because of what people... You know, it's not that affirmation is bad or anything, but it's, I crave it because it helps me feel like I really need to feel. Without those things, I'm left wondering, oh, who am I? Yeah. What else? Any, anything else that you can think of that we turn to in order to feel worthy or dignified or fulfilled with ourselves when we forget this case of union with Christ? 
Okay, tell me more about that. Materials. Riches. Okay, good. Yeah. Hey, so I'm pursuing after certain things. I'm running after success. I, you know, maybe I'm that person who's just got to see, you know, I've got to see six figures on that at the end of the year. I've got, or I'm that person who's got to see seven figures. I'm, I'm that person who um, has to have built this company to this much. I'm this person who, uh, you know, has to have these kinds of, of clothes and these kind of trinkets uh, because that makes me feel legit. Makes me feel legit. Really good. Doesn't work, by the way. Doesn't work, by the way. You get it, and you're like, oh, this is awesome, except I still feel the same way. And even when someone gives you good affirmation, it only lasts for a while, too. You know, that intoxicating feeling that you can get when someone gives you really, really good, biblical, awesome affirmation doesn't last forever. You're still, if you're, if you're banking on that to feel good about yourselves, you're, you're always going to be wanting the next one. Who's going to say it next? Oh, I need someone else to say it again. Maybe it was just a one-off, you know? We are quick to take what God has said about us, being more than conquerors, being united to a king, and instead speak over us, ourselves, things like not good enough. Oh, I'm just a failure. No, I'm just, I'm a disappointment. I, I, I'm a loser. You know, I'm unwanted. I'm unwanted. But union with Christ challenges all of that. Union with Christ challenges all of that. We have positionally everything that Christ has. And so in light of this union, we have all of the promises of the gospel. We have all of the promises of the gospel. And frankly, and I've said this before, because what Christ has already spoken over you and who, who he's declared you to be, what you say about yourself doesn't matter. Too bad. God has already spoken. God has already spoken. And so the fact that you call yourself a loser or a failure or a not good enough or a this or that, okay, in terms of who you are just at core, and I don't mean that you have failed or something like that, but the, the, the imagery here is, if you're united to Christ, that's where your identity is. Failing at something doesn't make you a failure. Failing at something doesn't make you a failure. Being less than what you expected as a spouse or a parent or a whatever doesn't make you a failure or a bad this as some kind of identity statement. Okay? Redeemed. Sons and daughters of a king. Co-heirs with Christ future heir to the world, sins forgiven. That's who you are, and that is who you are becoming, and that's who it's promised that you will one day be. And so that is the identity that we have to live in. Now, let me ask you a question. So I asked, you know, so we said, these are these things that we get in light of union with Christ. We heard a couple of examples of things that we turn to in the absence of um, in the absence of like those, it just oh that sounds so good. It's like a great theology, but it just doesn't really do anything for me. Like I need something a little bit more existentially satisfying. Um, why is it? Why, why is it? Uh, what is it fundamentally about us that makes the the, the glorious truths that I just laid out um, perhaps not enough for us in the moment? What feature of us makes it not enough? We need some of these other things. What do you think? Okay. 
Okay, yes, so I want immediate gratification. Excellent. I want immediate gratification, and that's going to tie into, that, 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 that ties into, there's kind of another element to it as well. That is exactly right. What else? What else about us? Pride. Tell me why. Tell me why. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly, that is exactly right. So it's these two things combined together. It's pride and instant gratification. And the two are related because we want instant gratification before other people. So you remember in C.S. Lewis's, I think it's in Mere Christianity, he says pride doesn't wake up and say I'm a good man or something. He says it wakes up and says I'm a better man than the person next to me. You know, pride is comparative and union. And you might think in the church, well, everyone, every, gosh, I look around, everybody's united to Christ. Who's a Christian. I want to stand out. Everyone's got the same promises. Okay. I want to be somebody, you know, that's not in somebody that's like everybody else. So I need to be a standout. I need people to think that I'm excellent and this always, oh, you're great, oh, you're a great theologian, or you're a great this or that. I need, I gotta find something else because I gotta look out at the field and I have to, on some important metrics that I value, stack up well. That's how I feel practically good about myself because everyone's got these promises. You know what that is? Pride wed to instant gratification. Okay? I wanna feel good about myself because I compare favorably in metrics that I care about with other people that's what okay and so again when our identity is not wrapped up in being successful in a certain area failures provide us opportunities failures be failing never makes us failures but failures can provide opportunities what do i mean by that how is failure opportunities This is growth and progress 101 here. We, this is great stuff. How, how does a failure an opportunity? Yes, sir. Good. When I fail somewhere, I have an opportunity to say, what went wrong here? Like, why did this happen? What does this tell me about me? Okay, what else? How else is failure an opportunity? And maybe it's a more just developed version of, of what Mike, Mike said, a, a general way of saying probably all of the answers that could be said. How is failure an opportunity? Did you raise your hand? Oh, sorry. Say something anyway. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Where we are weak, God is strong. So we have opportunities in failure to learn something about ourselves, and we have an opportunity to press in to God in the gospel. Okay. So maybe it is I lose it with my kids, or you lose it with your spouse, or whatever. And you have an and you, and you fail. Doesn't make you a failure, but you do have. You can either squander that opportunity, or you can say, "Hmm, why was it that I just did that? When I snapped at my spouse, why did I just do that? Like, what all came together? Let's have a little dissection of the heart moment here. And maybe you're not particularly introspective, and someone else might need to talk with you through it. And that's perfectly fine. Some people aren't going to be their own self surgeons." 
you're a, you're a verbal processor out loud, you talk with someone else about it, that's great. But, but failure provides you an opportunity to say, why do I do the things I do? And how do I change? What do I need to do to move forward? And how does God fix, how does God fit into the picture? Where am I not trusting? Where am I not believing? Where am I forgetting things that I should otherwise not forget? That's resulting in these behaviors. And there's always going to be circumstantial stuff too. You know, you last, well, it was because I was tired. Oh, it was because I was this or that. Fair enough. I'm not saying that there's only one thing ever that's only a single contributing factor to everything that happens. I'm just saying failure allows you an opportunity to step back and say, what happened? Why did it happen? How do I change? And how does God affect that change in my heart? How does God affect that change in my heart? Okay? And I would say even in, even in things that aren't particularly sinful, maybe you have an investment strategy that failed, you know? You know, you had an investment strategy, wasn't sinful, it just didn't work. But it provides you an opportunity to say, okay, it's a learning opportunity. Very famously, if you remember Thomas Edison, I can't remember the exact numbers, probably someone else does. You know, I don't know how many times, hundreds, maybe over a thousand, I don't know. Hundreds of times we'll say, you know, to make the incandescent light bulb. And he failed, 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 failed hundreds of times. And then he finally got it, of course. And they asked him, you know, why, uh, what did they say? I can't remember exactly how they phrased it. But, you know, what did you, something to learn about failing so many times to make a light bulb? And he said, I didn't, you know, I learned this many ways to not make a light bulb. You know, he had understood it so well by that point. He understood it so well because of how many times that he had failed that it, that had been his university the university of failure. Okay? Now, I want to be very clear. you got to fail in the right way and within the right boundaries for it to teach you like that. Sometimes failing, okay, is going to just be disastrous. But other times, fail, fail, failing, um, failing insofar as you're living in fear of the Lord and living wisely can be an incredible teacher. Okay? But it can't be, it can't be if your functional identity and sense of self-worth is in these things. So if my sense of identity and self-worth is that person who is great at or this or who excels past others in this, and all of a sudden that comes tumbling down because it's pointed out to me that that's not the case or maybe I have some huge failure in that area, then all of a sudden, who am I? Who am I now? I had all my identity, my identity functionally put there. That's what I really made me feel good about myself. I was a real contributor, you know. Now I don't have that, so who am I? Who am I? Let me give you one practical, uh, one more practical example. This is just very, uh, this importance, why I'm belaboring the point. One of our youth, actually, from years ago, told me this is the most profound thing I've, uh, uh, one, I've heard one of the, our, our youths ever say. It was amazing. He was talking to they were this, a bunch of uh, teenagers, well, maybe they were teenagers, preteen or teenagers, and they're girls and boys, and you know how they do, and they all get together and then there's drama. Can you imagine that? There's drama. And I remember talking to this one young man, and he said, listen how insightful this is. He says, when there's problems and there's drama, everyone knows their role. Okay? This person's kind of the mediator. This person is the aggrieved person way over here. This is the girl that this. This is the guy who's this. Can we all know what to do. But in the absence of some kind of conflict, we wonder, like, who are we? That's what he, that was a very young man. He could have been 12, 13 years old. Okay? And what they needed is they needed drama and angst in order to kind of understand who they were. 
In other words, they're finding their identity in the wrong place. I'm, you got the one person who, again, who's the rescuer who kind of comes in. The one who, who stands in between is kind of the Switzerland that just doesn't get involved. Then you, got, then you got this person over here, and they all understood that. But in the absence of conflict, he said, we just don't really know like, what to do. We, don't, we just kind of don't know how to behave. We found their identity in the wrong place. Union with Christ, identity. Um, let, me give one, let me ask one more question here. What about in terms of processing critical feedback? How do you think that being united with Christ in a way that is meaningful, in a way that we own, changes the way that we take uh, feedback, crit criticism, personal criticism, feedback? Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. so if, I'm, if I have my identity functionally centered, not theologically centered, that's very different. Good piece of theology, great. If I've owned that, if I feel that in my soul, if I live that, then when someone critiques me, okay, they're not tearing me down. That's not even possible. My identity is in Christ. I'm seated in the heavenly places. What, what it th then becomes is a learning opportunity. Even if the criticism is wrong, and even if the criticism, or even if the criticism is 99% wrong and 1% right, because my identity is in Christ, I don't have to have a knee-jerk reactive attitude to the person poorly giving me feedback. I can say, most of that I think is not true. But you know what? They might have been onto something in that one, that one thing they said. They, could have, that was, they were onto something. And if I didn't listen to them, I wouldn't have heard that. So may, maybe there is an opportunity here. All right? Um, so yeah, I, that, that is essentially how I was thinking about it, is that when we understand ourselves... Not in light of, oh, I need to have people think of me this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. Because then when you get criticized in those areas, it's devastating. You know, when my identity is in being a good X, Y, or Z, and someone says, well, I'm not really sure. <gasps> it's like the dagger, right? But otherwise, someone says, hey, I think that you're really, you really struggle this, or I've seen this, and it's, I'm, I'm kind of concerned, honestly, that this and that. Instead of going, how dare you? You say, okay, talk to me a little bit more about that. Talk to me more. Tell me more about that. That requires humility, but if you have an identity that is rooted and grounded in Christ, then you're going to be able to say, okay, like no, no weapon formed against me can prosper, including yours. So let's hear it. Let's hear it. What an opportunity. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to ask forgiveness to somebody. What an opportunity. What a great opportunity. Most people need more opportunities to ask for forgiveness because they're not good at it. What an opportunity. I could have an opportunity to say, hey, because of this and this, I sinned against you. I, I need to ask your forgiveness. So would you please for, forgive me? And here's how I'm going to commit to not doing that in the future. So, so many people would be so well served if they had more reps at even something like that. So opportunities abound, but all of it goes kaput if you don't have an identity that is rooted in Christ because you will be crippled by insecurity that will make your interactions with people perilous. There'll be danger lurking in every conversation, every relationship, behind every criticism. You have the potential to walk away devastated because of how much value you put in these things. Okay? Okay, that was the first one. I belabored that one a little bit because I think it's one of the most important. I think it's one of the most important practical takeaways of union with Christ. All right, but let's go to the next one. The second is the the, the way we carry ourselves. The way we, uh, oh no, oh good, I got... Uh, I did two for one. I just had the my outline. It's amazing. Okay, how we process failure and criticism. Those are, now we're making great time. Okay, we were behind. Now we're doing well. Okay, 
The choices we make and uh, the way we carry ourselves. You know, union with Christ provides a little bit different angle for obedience. And um, the last year, if I understand correctly, the women's ministry had the theme of walk worthy. I could be mistaken about that, but I'm pretty sure it's something like that. Walk worthy. And that is exactly what I'm getting at right here. This idea of walking worthy. You know, walking worthy doesn't ask questions like, is this passable? Is this passable? Walking worthy says, is, is this dignified? You know, is this dignified? Not, can I get away with it? Because what is it? Okay, well, I really want to do this. Does the Bible say, okay, whew, I can get in. I can, it's passable. You know, walk worthy says like, you know, What's dignified? What's a dignified way to carry yourself? Listen, are you really the son of a king, daughter of a king? Okay. Are you really the heir of a world? Are you really someone who, like Lewis describes, will one day be so glorious that people might be tempted to worship you? Because that's how glorious you will be, even more so than the angels that will judge. 1 Corinthians 6, 3. If that's true, doesn't that affect how you carry yourself? I mean, if you're royalty walking around, doesn't that affect how you act and things that you engage in? In other words, there might be things that you could, by the letter of the law, okay, engage in that aren't sin. Okay? Where I couldn't say, hey, you're sinning. But you still might wonder, is that like dignified though? Maybe only asking what, where is the sin line is setting the bar a little bit low. Maybe asking things like, what is wise? What's worthy? What's dignified? So think about this. I mean, I think the best example here is to, be, is to look at someone who you think is a particularly dignified Christian man or woman. Okay, and we have those represented in our congregation. And you ask a question like this. Okay. In this situation, how would this person carry themselves? How might they carry themselves? Okay? How might the most dignified people... And it could be that could be your parents. That could be uh, pastors. That could be other people at our... That could be a, a, a people at work, even. Whoever. But, but someone who is a Christian, someone you're like, whoa, that, that person is, ex is super dignified. You know, they, are, they, they walk not just like, okay, they avoid sin, but they, they walk worthy. They carry themselves in a way that they, they that, that person looks like they're about to inherit the earth when you look at their life. You know, they live like that. They look like they're going to be a custodian of a renewed earth. That's what their life looks like. So you look at those people and you ask, Instead, you know, instead of what would Jesus do in this in this little example, it's like, what would this how would this person carry themselves? And then say, okay, maybe I should carry myself that way. Maybe I should carry myself that way. How would someone united to Christ carry themselves? And then you remember, oh wait, that's me. That's me. If I was united to Christ, and if I was royalty walking around, how would I carry myself? Oh wait, that's me. That is me. It's not a hypothetical. That's true. And so you can look out at examples of people who you feel like carry themselves in a particularly dignified way and model that. But the idea is if you're united to a risen Christ, there's a better question to ask than simply, is this sin? If not, don't talk to me about it. 
We can set the bar higher for, as Christians and walk worthy and walk in a way that is di- dignified or to use another word that's common is, is, is fitting. Is this fitting? Like there are certain things you could do at the dinner table that aren't sin, but they're not fitting either. You know what I mean? There's a difference. There's a difference. Is this fitting for someone united in Jesus? Okay? That's, that's the takeaway. Well, let me just say this. We have, that, that, concludes, that concludes the Union with Christ series. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. I've got to, I want to put this all up. Look at this ground that we've covered. All right, we started with an exegetical basis for what the union in Christ language, where it even comes from. The in Christ, with Christ passages, united to Christ. And then they put plenty of passages that are similarly worded and similarly themed. Then we looked at the story of the Christ with whom we are united. Because being united with Christ, um, his story in one sense becomes our story. And then we looked at what is union with Christ exactly and how does it work? And we talked about the difference between a positional sense of being united with Christ where we get credit for Christ and the things that he has done in our behalf. Uh, And then we talked about the mystical union with Christ, which is not just a metaphor, that there is this mystical union, and I argued that that happens via the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Luke will call it the Spirit of Jesus um, and it is that uh, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead gloriously, that is how Christ functionally uh, ministers from heaven, and that is whom that is how we are united to Christ in this way that is not flowery language, but is, like Paul says, is a mystery uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. A man and woman uh, uh, come together in one flesh, and he says, I know this is a mystery, but I'm speaking to Christ in the church. I mean, there is something very mysterious, but also very real. Then we talked about union in Christ and justification. We talked about present justification, okay? We talked about we are truly justified now by faith alone, apart from any works. We are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then we talked about because of the resurrection, which was Christ's justification, there is a future justification to come that will be by works. And just to be incredibly clear, if you haven't been here and think that sounds very, very odd, uh, when I say a justification according to works at the end, I don't mean a test to, you know, I don't, I'm not saying like, you know, the basis upon which some grounds entry to the kingdom of God or anything like that. It's final vindication. It is, it is the Matthew 25. Hey, when I was in prison, did you visit me? There's, in Matthew 25, there's no theology test. The picture is who, who is publicly sorted out and vindicated before the world is on the basis of fruit. That fruit, obviously, in the run of life comes from a renewed heart that is solely by the gracious gift of God. Two different kinds of justification, very uh, uh, common in the Reformed tradition. If that's new for you or if you weren't there for that part of the series and that sounds very odd, come talk to me afterwards. Uh, Then we talked about credited righteousness versus infused or imparted righteousness, like a Catholic church believes. We'll quickly get into that in the denominations uh, series. We talked about renewal of the glorious image of God. We talked about that there's only been two images of God ever sanctioned, men and then Jesus Christ, who took on flesh as the image of the invisible God. Okay, but how that we are being renewed in the knowledge of the creator into the same image. And that is this renewal project of the image of God that was not lost, but marred after sin and Eden that is being restored and provides the theological basis for what we would call progressive sanctification. 
then we talked about corporate unity and diversity, had a two and a half or so uh, uh, sessions on, on what does corporate unity look like, church, local church unity look like, and the diversity represented within it in light of union with Christ. And then finally, we just concluded with union and um, Christian identity. Now, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but I'm just, I was just curious as I went through this, um, what maybe one or two people, and it's, this isn't to make me feel good, this is genuine curiosity. Was there anything um, that we went through that stuck out to you more than others that was like, oh, yeah, that, that caused me to think about something in a new way or was particularly challenging? If not, I'll just assume all, all of it was profound. Okay? <laughs> no, I'm, of course, joking. Of course, joking. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have an issue with the diversity part. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That to me is diversity. Huh. Oh, yeah. So that's where I had to change my mindset. Yeah. Right, right, right. 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 Yes. Well, let me just say thank you for giving me the opportunity to explain and thank you for listening and not writing it off because, yeah, you're right. Certainly is not the kind of diversity the the New Testament expects. But as we went through it, the New Testament does expect other kinds of diversity, but, but definitely not men dressing up as women. Um, yes, and anything else as we went through this series was particularly challenging or maybe even confusing, I don't know, particularly helpful. Yeah, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah, yeah. So the mystical union giving, yeah, the, the more you, you think about union of Christ, the more you just seem to see it everywhere, you know? Once you're, once you're kind of wired to see union with Christ and how it bleeds into, like, everything in the New Testament, you're like, oh, there it is again, there it is again, there it is again. Excellent. Anything else here? Anything else? Yeah, Sandy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so examining how fear of man, instead of finding my identity in Christ, how that can, uh, uh, taking a hard, a hard look at that and seeing how that affects my daily life and how that can be redeemed, and how, how I can fight against that. Yeah, how I can fight against Yeah. Amen. Amen. Love it. Any final words before we step into this next series? Go ahead. Yeah.
Yeah. You know, because we do. We don't want to disgrace the blood of Christ. Right. You know, we, 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 we want to we want to do that. But then we gotta hold on to the fact that it is a very real reality that this flesh that we that we look at here and you know it can be used in between the blood, hair, meat and bone and the other implications of the flesh. Yeah. All right. We also display that deadness. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think sometimes people can get confused. You know, we can get we can get over on one side or the other. Yeah, surely. A little bit too much, and, and it's always with the fact that and everything you said was perfectly online about who we are becoming, who right. we will be, but we our humility in check or where it should be, we have to realize that that flesh that we drag around yeah. uh, what Paul says who will uh, deliver me from this from body of death. Body yeah. Right. yeah. Well, we got to keep that line straight. Yeah, good. The world don't have to walk that line. That's right. Yeah, good. Really good. Anything else? Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very well said. Very well said. That's exactly right. Very well said. Okay, well, again, I hope this has been helpful for you. I do think the more you think about union with Christ, um, the more you will see it over and over in the New Testament, and it will shape the way that you understand uh, some core uh, um, New Testament, especially, especially doctrines. Well, let's go ahead and jump into, we've got about 10 minutes, which is, a great, which is a great amount of time to kind of get the intro going here. Our study of denominations. Our study of denominations. Let me just ask you a question, and this is going to take up the first part of the series here, and ask this. You always know i got to start with the conceptual philosophical, okay? When we're going to study denominations, you might think it's a good place to, where is a good place to start? Our church. Oh, let's see. <laughs> Man, that's not what I was going for at all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. That was, I guess, a very poorly worded question. Um, here's what I was thinking instead of that. I was thinking that if you're going to have a study on denominations, it might be a good place. To, a good place to start might be asking, "What is a denomination? What is a denomination?" I mean, that stands to reason, right? I mean, you're going to have a study about denominations. You might ask, "What a denomination is?" And um, and I'm going to tell you right now, the answer is not forthcoming. 
The answer is not forthcoming, but I just want to throw it out briefly. And just, what do you, what do you think? Well, if, you, if someone were just to ask you, I'm not asking for some super well thought through answer because it's, we don't have time for that. What, what would you say a denomination is? Yeah. Who, who said it? Someone over here? No? Josh? Denominations of money. That's fine. All right. Denominations of money. That is profound. Okay. 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 All right. When you. All right. Let me rephrase the question one more time. When you think of Christian denominations. When you think of Christian denominations. Well, someone said, well, what is that? What would you say? Christian. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. What else? What other effort at definition here? Yes. Okay. So very good. That was a very, very good and evangelical understanding of denomination. Essentially, that's that's saying, listen, evangelicals are the ones who use the evangelicals own the denominations. Okay. A denomination is a subset of evangelicalism that holds to diff, that, that they hold to the gospel and all the rest, but they have different theological views and they're not a cult. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's that's a very so let's hold that thought. So can you say that one more time? I like because I like the way you said it. So, uh, this disagreement that arose. Okay. Okay. So the, so in the way you told the story there, there's a historical aspect to denomination. Something happened, and then historically downstream from that, here we are with something else, and we're calling this denomination. Yeah. Now, are you asking me? Is that a rhetorical question? Whoa, you, whoa, time out. Whoa, we're not there. We're not there. We're not there. I'm asking the questions here. Okay? I'm asking the questions here. Um, so, what we're going to find is that, you know, I'm not the, I don't want to be the vocabulary police, and neither do you. That's a bad thing to be, is the vocabulary police. But when it turns to discussing denominations... Um, there are some conceptual challenges in getting out exactly what we're talking about and whose term, the, who, whose, whose uh, ground the term gets to be used on. And uh, I would say that the one I grew up with was very similar, if not identical, to what Mike articulated, and that is denominations are subsets within evangelical Christianity. Okay, and so ruled out of that would be the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, cults, things like that, and and so denominations are now, and that's fine, by the way. But here's this here's this shocking conclusion. There's like a whole different world of people who use the word in a different way, and you can say, well, they're using it the wrong way. But then you'll be like, well, well, why why is this version of the word the right way? 
And then you'll find that historically, that maybe that doesn't hold up quite as well. Fine way to understand it. But it may be that people mean different things when they talk about denominations. Let me just briefly articulate some of the challenges here. Um, so you have certainly folks who uh, would like to consider themselves a denomination, but because we would generally consider them a cult, they don't get to be a denomination. Categorically, they get to be a cult. The, uh, the Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and, and plenty of other cult-like uh, cult like religions, we would say that, no, I mean, you have some language and you try to sound like you really, really agree when you talk to some of these people. But you, you, there are things that you deny that are so fundamental to salvation and the gospel that you just, you know, if you really, really buy that, you, there's, just no, there's just no way that you could simultaneously believe a, a gospel that saves. The second challenge in talking about denominations is, is that we have to ask ourselves whether we're talking about official documents and dogma, okay, like historical artifacts, right, that lay out particular beliefs, or we're talking about what people who profess a certain denomination, profess a certain denomination believe. Well, how people who identify a certain way what uh, uh, believe. Let me give you an example of this. Um, a great example of the difference here comes out of Catholicism. Pew Research just recently did a survey. It finds it, they found that most self-described Catholics don't believe the core teaching of transubstantiation, and that is the belief that in the Lord's Supper of the Eucharist, that the body and that the bread and wine literally turn into physically the body and blood of Jesus. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a symbol. There is a real sacrifice, and that real sacrifice, when you partake of it, is actually propitiates for sin. Okay? The Mass, therefore, that's why it's the center of Catholic Mass. It's like the main event. Okay? But, and that is, that is very clear in Roman dogma. There's like no question about it. Authoritatively, infallibly defined in their documents. And nevertheless, 69% say they don't believe that in the Catholic Mass, the bread and wine used in communion... Uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. In fact, uh, read in the middle of the sentence, nearly 7 in 10 Catholics, 69%, say they personally believe that during Catholic Mass, the bread and wine used in communion are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. Just one-third of U.S. Catholics say they believe that during the Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. In addition to asking Catholics what they believed about the Eucharist, the new survey also included a question that tested whether Catholics know what the Church teaches on the subject. Most Catholics who believe that the bread and wine are symbolic do not know that the Church holds that transubstantiation occurs. Overall, then, 43% of Catholics believe that the bread and wine are symbolic, and also that this reflects the position of the church, and yet still one in five Catholics reject the idea of transubstantiation, even though they know that that's what the Catholic church teaches. Now, folks, once we get into Catholicism, we're going to see the idea of someone who is a Catholic, who does not believe the infallibly proclaimed Roman dogma. It's just difficult to know what to make of them. So here's the thing. Here's the conceptual question. Is that person a Catholic? Are 69% of people who claim to be Catholic here, are they Catholic or not? And the answer is, kind of depends how you're defining it, I guess. 
because they certainly do not line up with the documents. And so when even someone says, are Catholics Christians, because of stuff like this and because of people that you've talked to, the question is, what, what do you mean by it? What does that even mean exactly? Who gets to say what counts as a, 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 as a Catholic? Let me just give, oh no, you know what? I, I'm, I can't get, we're at 945. I was just ramping up. I was about to give the other side. So we will pause here as we start some of these inquiries into the nature of denominations, uh, and then we will begin to walk through uh, uh, maybe eight, eight or nine or so denominations, which will include Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and then quite a few of the, uh, the Protestant denominations. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you. Thank you for this study in union with Christ. We're excited to explore uh, the differences uh, in the body of Christ and uh, understand um, why in some cases, and, and in fact many cases, that division has seemed inevitable because of people's convictions about the gospel and what that means, what that means for the clarity of Scripture and how we're supposed to think about that in relationship to tradition and all the rest of it. So we pray that you would give us wisdom and humble hearts as we continue to learn, we continue to move forward together. Bless our next hour of worship in Jesus' name. Amen.